If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello and welcome to Slate Money, the babies and burgers edition. Guiding you through the business and finance news of the week, I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York. And on this week's show, we're going to start with some letters sent in by you. We love our mailbag and we love you. Then we'll take on the business of surrogacy. You may be shocked to learn that being paid to bear other people's children is not the most above board of industries. We'll talk about the big labor news this week, the National Labor Board decision that McDonald's might be held responsible for its franchisees. And then, because Argentina just defaulted on its debt again, and it is my favorite subject in the world, we are going to talk about Argentina again. I make no apologies for this. And as ever, we will finish with our regular numbers lightning round. Uh, speaking of which, let me introduce our regular guests. Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia. How are you this morning? I'm great, Felix. How much sleep have you had in the past two nights? Not that much. This is going to, we're going to put everything on you this awesome, week. Awesome, awesome. I think well under exhaustion. But you do have a number. Of course, I have a number, yes. Good for you. We're going to have a mystery number from Kathy. Jordan, do you have a number? <laughs> I do have a number. 
is, is your mystery number a mystery number as well? Kathy, I'll show you mine. If you, or if you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Um, I, I, I also have a number, which is 66 million, but never mind that. We will start this week with the mailbag. Uh, we love it when you send in mail. Matthew Murphy had an interesting question, which he sent to Slate Money at Slate.com. Do we think that banks actively calculate on some kind of a spreadsheet whether illegal activity is worth it by comparing the profits from the activity to the expected fine they might end up paying if they get caught and the cost of their reputation and the probability? Do they actually mathematically work this out, Kathy? My guess is no, but not because they don't want to. (laughs) They don't do it because... What I've learned about data and data and digitization of records is that it allows people to track things really well and efficiently. But do they do it in their head? Yeah. There's a kind of cost-benefit analysis thing going on? But of like, course. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, right? If, you, if you're like, I'm going to go shoplift, I think there's a cost-benefit analysis. I'm like, well, what are the chances I'm going to get caught and not actually get that thing? But they are completely conscious of the fact that what they're doing is illegal when they're doing it. I believe they mostly are. Because I disagree with that. I think that almost everyone deludes themselves into believing that what they're doing is right and proper at nearly all times. I can't speak to what's inside the soul of <laughs> your typical Wall Street banker, unfortunately. But I do think that most of them would have been told by their general counsel that if they even have a hunch that they might need to do a cost benefit along those lines, for the love of God, don't put it in writing or on our systems anywhere. Um, because if you want a smoking gun, yeah, I mean, like that, that's, that's totally it. I want the spreadsheet that has a column called probability of getting caught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, We also had an interesting question from Michael Kelsey about tax reform. We got a lot of mail about tax reform, and and Michael Kelsey asked probably the most basic question. I'm going to start with you, Jordan. If if you could pass any single tax reform you wanted, which one would it be? Any single tax reform I wanted, which one would it be? I, I can answer this. Go on, yeah, Kathy. Go, go, go Raise yeah, capital so. gains. Raise the capital gains tax. You see, I was going to say something similar. Raise the capital gains tax to the level of the income tax. That's right. So they're exactly the same. I, I don't know if I'd raise it that high. You know, right now, I think the one I, w- I would go for is a 0.1% tax on a uh, 0.1% tax on wealth. Like the, the a wealth ba- tax? Yeah, a wealth tax for people who have over $20 million, essentially, in assets. Also, I think maybe a financial transactions tax yeah. does almost no harm and quite a lot of good, and it would more or less wipe out high-frequency trading at a stroke, which would be no bad thing, and um, and would g- generate revenue. But there's lots of taxes which are good. Carbon taxes are good. Yeah, well, that one's wonderful. It's not really tax reform, is it? Beyond the realm of imagination. <laughs> I, I did want to mention that I, I spent some time with a friend of mine who's an expert on tax law this week talking about the inversion stuff. And like literally the more I know about it, the more complicated it is. So when people – I do want to make the mention that when people say close the loophole on tax inversion, they are not talking about an actual thing. Which which is also one of the reasons why if we're talking about tax reform – Big, simple taxes like a wealth – well, a wealth tax wouldn't be simple, but a carbon tax could be relatively simple. A financial transactions tax could be relatively simple and similar – what are known as Pigovian taxes where you tax the things you don't want. Yeah. But if, if you want to get really technical and complicated, my, my one is that I would like to abolish the tax deductibility of interest payments. For mortgages? 
Um, or just all interest, yes. All, all interest, yeah. Uh, for more, including mortgages, oh, that's but a good in one. general for everything. Oh, it's a really good one, yes. <laughs> I, you have to be pretty nerdy to know why that's so good. Uh, may, maybe next week we'll talk about that, but I'll tell you who else. Not only is Kathy O'Neill a fan of this, but the other person who's a fan of this? Paul Volcker. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Little known fact. Anyway, Kathy, let's move on to topic number one, which is something to do with babies. Tell us about... Babies. Okay, so there's a guy named Rudy Rupak, who, by the way, is an ex-CTO of American Apparel, just by the way, who has gotten in trouble recently for promising to help people have babies through uh, what's called gestational surrogacy and then not actually delivering on that promise. And he's taken a lot of money from a lot of people. I mean, I don't know if it's in the millions, but it's around that. Basically, gestational surrogacy is when you... I'll just do the standard version, and then there's lots of variations. But it's when a woman and a man decide they want a baby, but they can't gestate the baby. So they maybe they donate the egg or the sperm or both and make a little um, thing which they give to another woman who then brings the baby to term. There's a word for that, which I have... A zygote? Yes. Maybe it's called a zygote. (laughs) And so, okay, lots of issues here, right? Legal issues, ethical issues. And like legally speaking, it's all over the map. Even in the United States, every state has a different law about this. Like California, Illinois, and Nevada are the only three states that have well-defined rules about this. Almost every other state has some kind of confusion thing. And the reason it's so confusing is because things happen when this happens. Like this is not a new idea, although it's much bigger than it used to be. And it's going to get even bigger, I claim. I'll say that why in a second. But you have things like this woman, you know, carried a baby to term. And then at the end of the day, when the baby was born, she's like, I don't want to give this up. And I'm the mother. And then so it comes to the sort of technical legal definition of motherhood, which is interesting. Because, yeah, the question is, is the person who gave birth to the baby the mother? And the obvious answer to that is, duh, yes. But then legally and morally and financially, that's not maybe the case. And one of the consequences of the very complex set of regulations and permits and so forth in the United States is that many American couples wind up using surrogates in Mexico or in India rather than in the U.S. because there's much less red tape if you do that. But then, of course, it becomes even more open to abuse and to people like your man, Rudy. Rudy, yeah. Well, actually, he has more than one name. (laughs) And he also has 150 different domain names for his business, which, which at the end of the day, he said, this is not fraud. This is just mismanagement. I'm terrible about contracts. But he managed (laughs) to get those, all those contracts done. Yeah, there's like, there's a bunch of different issues. Let me just throw out one. There's a spectrum of shadiness to this whole thing. On the one hand, you have like people who really want kids but can't have kids and they're like, oh my God, I need help. And can I pay your expenses if you're willing to have my kid for me? And there's a a free woman who decides this is what I want to do because I love being pregnant or whatever reason. And it seems like a perfectly reasonable interaction and negotiation. And on the other side, you have like literally baby selling. So like another thing that was mentioned is that there are these clinics that pop up. And it's important to realize that every single part of this transaction is now a commodity. You can buy eggs, you can buy sperm, then you can pay people, women often in India, to get pregnant and then have this baby. So at the end of the day, you could, and this actually happens, claim that they have adoptive parents who have ordered this, who have begged them for children, but they don't. And then they have these babies and they're selling them. So that's like the other super far end of the spectrum. You're literally having baby selling. So, yeah, I think that... This is the kind of issue where it, it kind of begs for some global standards. I hate to like say world government, but like, you know, 
one of the things that's driving people to operations like this one that kind of is now in bankruptcy and it seems like may have been defrauding people is that it, it's very expensive to get a surrogate in the United States if you want to do it right. I mean, they're very well-regarded, reputable services. They do it for like twenty, thirty thousand dollars It's expensive in the U.S. They're, that's what red tape gets you. You're paying $30,000 at least yeah, I, as a I fee don't, to the I, people. I mean, I think it is cheaper in, yeah. in Mexico and India, but I don't think this is a sort of race to the bottom in terms of costs. I think the reason people do it in those countries is just because it's easier more than because it's cheaper. Let me let me throw in another thing, though. I mean, and this it's more ethical than legal. It's not just red tape, right? It's a question of whether the woman actually chose to do this. You know, mm. you, you have less choice as a woman living in rural India and you're impoverished. Like, you don't feel like, oh, yeah, I love having babies. I'm going to do this for this couple I really like. It's more like, I have to do this. You know, this is going to pay the bills. I mean, this is all related to, for instance, the debate about whether people should be allowed to sell their kidneys to someone who needs a kidney. And the reason why maybe that's not such a good idea is precisely that people who don't really want to, but who are desperate for money for whatever reason, will wind up feeling like it's their only choice. And that's not a world that we really want to live in. On the other hand, you still have it happening. You know, I mean, it's still... Right. It's it, happening it, more and more. And like, it's hard to actually follow the numbers here because it's not reported anywhere centrally. But if you follow the sort of number of clinics, then you'll see that this is growing, so we're doubling in size in the last decade. And, and so I guess, yeah, again, that, that's why I feel like there should be some kind of accord, because at least in the United States... Some you, kind of which? Some kind of accord, sorry. Uh, accord? Yeah, I mean, it'd be great if there was some sort of treaty on this between countries. I mean, I don't see why... A it's treaty? A treaty. Oh, a treaty. A tre- I, I, I am literally not understanding any word you are You're saying. You're literally... Uh, There's a core yeah. in the tree. What are these cores in trees? You mean an accord in the treaty? Well, Felix, okay. I will tell you about the cord in the treaty. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, there. I feel like there, sh- there should be... For, for something where you, you have wealthy people from around the world shopping for where they can most easily uh, have a woman get pregnant on their behalf and the problems that that creates, uh, I think that... that requires some global coordination if, if you ever actually want to deal with the potential downsides, the potential problems. If you don't, if you try to do it country by country basis, you're always just going to be kind of playing whack-a-mole, you know? I totally agree. And things get really shady, obviously. And the more opacity there is and the, like the, the farther away it is, yeah. the more likely you have people who are just like, make babies for me, I'm going to sell them. So maybe there needs to be like a, a worldwide treaty on like body selling. You see, I, I'm, I'm, I'm highly skeptical about all of this. I think this is part of what makes countries different is they just have unbelievably different attitudes to this kind of thing. There's absolutely no way that you're ever going to get, you know, a hundred different countries on the same page when it comes to this. I think the one thing you might be able to do is just set up, you know, under the auspices of the World Health Organization or something like that, a centralized database of you know, everyone who's doing this. So at mm-hmm. least we can start measuring it and counting it and find out how prevalent it is. And, and you're right, Felix. It, it it's not only different, like, how people's attitudes, but the reasons it's happening. Like, this country, I'm 42. I'm pretty much the only friend of mine of my age who has kids. Like, it's it's amazing how many people in my generation are going to be asking for in vitro fertilization or some sort of thing in the next 10 years. It's it's just going to be huge in this country, not in India. They're not like, oh, where's my baby? Although the trend of women having babies later and later is a global trend. It and is. It's, it, it, it's even stronger in places like Italy than it is in That's the true. U.S. That's true. Enough of these babies. We're going to move (laughs) on to McDonald's because, you know what, 
there's no way that we can wind up on world government accords or treaties or anything else. Jordan, what, what has been going on at Mackie D's? Well, you see, the New World Order. Uh, so, no, um, so this week, uh, the NLRB's General Counsel, the National Labor the, the Relations who, Board. National Labor Relations Board. It's like the chief labor agent. When a union wants to certify or there are complaints about what companies are treating workers, it usually goes to the NLRB. Um, Which was the, established after the Great Depression. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, so it's, it's the chief labor agency in the United States. It's General Counsel concluded this week that McDonald's is a joint employer of all of its franchise's employees, its franchise's workers, all the people cooking burgers, you know, making the fries, manning the cashiers, that not only is the franchise owner the employer, but also McDonald's is a joint employer. And this sounds like a small technical issue, but in fact, it is a massive, massive deal for labor in the United States because all sorts of things about whether or not McDonald's can be held liable for the behavior of its franchises and most of the McDonald's restaurants you go to in the United States our franchises are determined by whether or not you consider it the employer. Um, McDonald's likes to say, you know, we license our franchises with a, you know, they pay us for the right to run a McDonald's restaurant. You know, we sell them the burgers, we do their marketing, but in the end, they are independent businessmen who are in charge of their, their, uh, how they treat their employees. The, essentially this, this, you know, the, the worker advocates say, no, that's not the case. McDonald's exerts all sorts of control over how they're paid, how they're managed in subtle and some not so subtle ways. And now this labor agency says, Yes, we agree with the workers. And this decision is going to impact a whole bunch of administrative hearings and all sorts of complaints that get But this decision and it's going to go to the courts is not final. And that's the key thing. Eventually, this will probably get decided in a federal appeals court or possibly maybe one day the Supreme Court. And this is, I, I think, what's interesting to me about, most interesting to me about this, and there are all sorts of angles, though, is that it looks like organized labor has finally found an avenue in which it can actually, without directly organizing workers at these franchises, to actually make a difference by bringing these complaints and fueling these strikes that essentially led to this decision um, and get some sort of legal change. It's managing to, rather than organize people, sort of become an advocacy group. Yeah, so the SEIU was... Uh part of this uh, battle. And they've, they have actually been organizing fast food workers. You. The something, something, something. Service, uh, Big service union. employees, international union. Oh, thank Big you. union yes. of, they would like to unionize burger flippers, but because of the franchise system, they find it very hard. Right. So it should be said that 90% of McDonald's are franchises. So McDonald's, McDonald's doesn't think of its it's um, in employees as the people that are actually flipping burgers. It thinks, okay, the people that work for us are the franchise owners. And I have a couple of things to say. I'm, and I, I have to say, I have an inside link here because my friend Mark Berenberg is a, a labor law professor at Columbia, and he and a couple other people at Columbia have been helping the SEIU on this case. So I, I got to talk to Mark Berenberg last night, and he showed me the complaint that these guys at Columbia made. And it basically explains the level of control that McDonald's, the, the parent company, has over these franchises. So there's something called the Hamburger University. Yes. All the franchise owners get trained at the Hamburger University um, where they get told exactly how everything has to happen to the, to the, de- the, the most minute detail. And they get a manual called the QSC manual, which is, stands for Quality, Service, and Cleanliness, which explains in more detail all the requirements of like, this is how big a patty is. This is how many patties should be able to be made in three minutes. All the requirements for the quality and the cleanliness. And then 
strongly worded suggestions and recommendations for service. So that it's clear that if you read this manual that McDonald's has explicitly made it seem like they have complete control over everything, but they're not actually telling you how to... How to wait, wait, so, actually, so hang on. I mean, let me just stop here because I feel like we're litigating the case here and I feel like there's no one who's defending McDonald's. Um, so let's just jump forwards a minute and say, yeah. let's assume that this case against McDonald's is strong and they are a co-employer. You know, the question is, what are the chances that this decision is going to hold up in appeal and all the way up through various levels of appeal. And if it does, is it actually going to change the lives of burger flippers? Only the general counsel has made this, right? Uh, They have Mm -hmm. to vote on it in the NLRB, but it's a five-person voting group, and the three of them are appointed by Obama. They think it's going to pass. That doesn't mean it's not going to be appealed or overturned. And obviously, the business world is not happy about this idea because a lot of people structure these subsidiaries in various ways to keep themselves at arm's length. And this is, I mean, this is everything old is new again, you know, because this is exactly the same argument that Uber loves to make about its drivers. They're they're not employees. They're sole contractors. McDonald's is, though, an extreme case. So I just want to say the manual I was talking about, also they have something called the shift management manual. Very, very, very precise directions where other companies don't do it that much. So it could be a case where McDonald's actually does get in trouble for this, but other companies don't. Yeah, there's an example. So I think that to your question of what's the chance of this holding up, I don't think it's great. If it ever made it to the Supreme Court, I think Anthony Kennedy would just kind of look at it and go, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it just, you know, it's an extremely pro-corporate court. I have a hard time imagining a a five-judge majority forming and saying, yes, let's let's uphold this ruling that would change the way fast food restaurants work forever. However— Or would it? If it it holds up, it doesn't change the way— I think it changes a lot because— Because McDonald's has its own restaurants. I mean, they might only be 10 percent, you know— why would it well, change it cha- that much? It, it does change. First off, it, it might change the ability of unions to actually go straight to McDonald's and try to organize workers in certain regions or whatnot, rather than just having to go franchise by franchise by franchise. It, yeah, it changes um, the, basically the ability to create a union, and then once they have a union, they can negotiate if more. They, I mean, so it at least opens up these sorts of things. But uh, you know, I think there's also a technology story going on here that is really worth bringing up because one of McDonald's big arguments, or really the entire restaurant industry's big arguments you've heard, is that. This is a radical departure, quote unquote. That's that's the language. A radical departure from precedent, and I think the response to that, and the you know the unions and, and the workers bringing these challenges have said it. But I, from what I've seen from some lawsuits, it seems credible. Is that technology really has changed the degree of control that companies like McDonald's have? They can literally monitor how many people are working in real time, how much they're being paid. And how much their pay is as a percentage of sales and whether or not that's going over a certain limit. And if so, if then they have to essentially, you know, the franchises are encouraged to cut down the number of workers or well, shift yeah, who's there. Th- there's, so th- there's, there's the is technology. Really... Yeah. I mean, I think what we, sh- what we should say is the technology has tipped the balance between capital and labor. One of the problems about working at McDonald's is that increasingly you can get called up to a shift on very short notice. And if you don't turn up to that shift, then you're fired because Mm -hmm. you haven't turned up to work, which means that even if you're not working many hours per week, you still can only work one job because you need to be available the whole time. And that technology of like trying to keep a larger number of people working fewer hours didn't really exist to the same degree that it does now. And so I think yeah, to, to Jordan's point, this this is a change. And, well, you know, it'll be a very long time, I think, before it results in, in any actual change in the world because it true. will be appealed. But we can but hope. And we will leave 
McDonald's there because we do need to move on to my favorite subject in the world. <laughs> we must. Hey, Felix, tell us what's going on with Argentina. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy, for us asking me that very good question. I'm very happy you asked me that. I will tell you what's happening in Argentina. Argentina has defaulted officially. Wow. It has happened. Woo. Do we have a gong or something for that? <laughs> <laughs> we? We, we will in, insert gong sound here. The unthinkable, well, it really wasn't unthinkable. People have been thinking about this for years, um, <laughs> has happened. This is a big deal in the world of sovereign debt geeks, and I count myself proudly among their number. We have a very large country with a very large amount of debt. And the interesting thing about this default is that Argentina has actually paid the money. It wrote the check and it sent the money to the Bank of New York, which is the trustee for the bondholders, and said, hey, Bank of New York, here's our coupon payment. Give it to the bondholders. And it's not Argentina's fault, really, that the Bank of New York has been enjoined by U.S. courts from actually doing that. So the money is now just sitting there gathering dust at Bank of New York, gathering dust by the way, being a technical term, it is not gathering interest at a statutory rate of 8 or 9%, which is what the exchange bondholders are going to require Felix, to cure the default. Can we back up for a second? Yes. What, which check did they cut? Which the coupon payment to their bondholders. So what? explain why that, that's being held. And that is being held because there is a judge in, in the federal court in, what, in New York, an 83-year-old chap named Thomas Grisey, who has been hearing <laughs> this case for well over a decade and got, eventually just got fed up with Argentina and said, OK, Argentina, I'm not even going to let you pay your bondholders. I'm going to create this remedy, this injunction, which prevents you from paying your bondholders unless you pay off these vulture funds, these hedge funds, the money that they're owed. Right. The vulture fund, headed by one fabulously wealthy American... Paul Singer. Yes. And that, so that fabulously wealthy American has used his influence to prevent a bunch of other bondholders from getting paid, as well as putting Argentina in a terrible position. I, I'd like to ask you this question. And although, although, to be honest, you know, I'm not completely convinced, and I have a piece on, up at Slate about this, how terrible Argentina's position really is as a result of this. In most cases, sovereign default is a very big deal, and it results in the collapse of the currency and the collapse of the government and a major recession and, you know, these kind of things. In Argentina, because they have the money, because they have the willingness to pay, because they have not had any access to international markets for well over a decade anyway, I'm not convinced that it's as big of a deal. Here's my, like, Occupy question, okay? (laughs) How is this different from some poor guy who just is being individual, being hounded by a really obnoxious debt collector and their credit score is being killed and they're just, go away, debt collector. It's, it's like at some level... It's, 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 it's basically exactly like that. So, my, um, so ex- our sympathies can the, be with Argentina. For, except for the, the debt collector in this case has extremely expensive lawyers and is willing to spend tens of millions of dollars on lawyers to not go away. And it's like Argentina is like, look... I, I went to bankruptcy court. I tried to declare bankruptcy, and I, I well, tried to pay... Well, there is no such thing as sovereign bankruptcy I court. tried to pay you guys off, and you're just not leaving me alone, and you're not letting me get on with my life. And I'm just like, there should be a way for this country to move on. And I, so, I forget, so, how yeah. much is Singer owed? Like, how much money does he actually... $1.5 billion. That's and right. that's with and then, interest, right? And, yeah, with, much, with interest. How and much is he worth? Then there's also... He's worth much more than that. Um, <laughs> and then on top of that, there's another call it $13 billion of other holdouts who will surely get paid if 
if Elliot yeah. gets paid. Oh, okay. And then if they get paid, there's this thing called the Rufo clause, the rights upon future offers clause, which Argentina says would mean that they would have to pay all of the exchange bondholders, all of the rest of their bondholders, $200 million. No one really believes that. Um, you know, let me, for the sake of being fair to Paul Singer, who I know, actually, I've met him, I've talked to him a few times, what he says is not in its, on its face unreasonable. You know, he has a debt under New York law, um, under which Argentina has promised to pay him a certain amount of money with certain, you know, interest if it goes into default. Um, he has a contract written under New York. Argentina waived sovereign immunity in that contract. He has every right to go to court in New York and to get a judgment and try and get paid in New York. Even Argentina admits all of this. Argentina happily admits that it owes Paul Singer this money. So the only question here is whether the New York courts can and should prevent Argentina from paying everyone else um, in an attempt to force Argentina to pay these so-called vulture funds. There is no dispute about the fact that this is a genuine debt which is genuinely owed by Argentina to the funds. I have curiosity. So if Argentina hasn't had access to international markets for basically a decade now, is it just domestic debt? Where, how, how does it work? Yeah. I mean, as my colleague Ben Edwards at Euromoney magazine once famously started an article, the world is becoming increasingly global. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what that means is that if Argentina can't borrow money from Americans in New York, it will just borrow money from Americans in Buenos Aires. Okay. And there are lots of emerging market funds, yeah. mutual funds, investment funds, who will simply buy Argentine bonds in Argentina. And those Argentine bonds in Argentina are paying, they're performing. So is that why Argentina is basically all right? Because that's not going to stop. That's that, not exactly. Gonna, that, that doesn't stop. And so, you know, you're just essentially just moving the jurisdiction of the place where you can borrow money. And now it's true that Argentina, if it could borrow in New York, it could borrow more cheaply in New York. It could borrow more money in New York. So it's a little bit constrained as to how much of a deficit it can run um, without just printing money to cover mm -hmm. the deficit. And so, therefore, that is what it has done. It started printing money to cover the deficit. And as a result of that, it's suffering from massive inflation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and as a result of the inflation, it's suffering from massive unemployment. And as a result of massive unemployment, it's suffering from, you know, a very low popularity rating for the president. And so all of these things are bad for Argentina. And Argentina is in a bad economic situation right now. It has unemployment of 25%. And that is partly, only partly, but partly a result of the fact that it has no access to international capital markets. So if it dealt with this case, it could probably help itself. But the fact is that it had every opportunity to deal with this case for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And it chose not to. And the same calculus pretty much applies now as applied last year or two years ago. Could it, I mean, could Argentina fix its fundamental issues or kind of fix it, its unemployment problem and fix its inflation problem without dealing with this, this case and with this debt? I would say that, and I'm not the biggest expert on this, mm -hmm. um, but I, I would say that it's almost impossible to find an example of an isolated economy which is cut off from international markets, which is also strong and growing and, um, you know, low unemployment. 
it can happen okay. for short amounts of time. And, you know, to a, maybe you could say that even China has done it to a certain degree. You know, mm. it's, that, there's not a huge amount of financial flows as opposed to trade flows in and out of China. But I would say that the chances are that when the Kirchner government finally ends at the, in October 2015, which is a long way away, then yeah. the new government will say, OK, we really need to just come to a deal and deal with it. Well, what are they going to do, though? What deal? Well, now, right now, they have not just the holdouts in default, not just the vultures in default, but everyone in default. So they're going to have to cure the default to the exchange bondholders. They're going to, as part of doing that, they're going to have to come to some kind of a deal with Thomas Griset or the vulture funds. No one knows exactly how they're going to do it. It's going to be messy, mm-hmm. but it's going to yeah, It's already to messy. So, I just so want to number, not my number, but 41 million Argentinians won American here. I just, I, it's like, yeah. it is mind-blowing the extent to which this one guy has leveraged the legal system in this country, in New York State, in fact, I believe, to so such a degree. Yeah, I guess old I, ransom those the, people. The reason I was asking those questions is because I, I think there's a fine distinction to make, which is this default, like you said, is not is, is kind of no big deal. It, it's like the default is not going to change the world. It's not apocalyptic. However, this whole situation for Argentina, it seems like you're saying, is a big deal. It's it, it's not as if they can just keep marching on without having to worry about. It. I mean, eventually uh, they will have to come to although, terms with it. Although they've been marching on for much longer than anyone thought that they could do. <laughs> the, you know, yeah. these things last longer than you think they can. We will leave Argentina for for this week. I'm sure we will return at some future point because this is a story which never ends. But I think we'll move on to the numbers. It's it's time for our numbers round, and I'm going to start with me. Why not? Because I'm in charge. <laughs> my, my, my number is $66 million. It's, it's a dollar amount, and it is the amount that was paid to the African franchise, you might say, of Al-Qaeda in ransom payments last year alone. Total ransom payments over the past few years have reached about 125 million, at least 125 million. These numbers are coming from an astonishing article by Rukmini Kalimachi in the New York Times. She used to be the AP West Africa Bureau Chief. She's done this in amazing reporting, and she has found that European countries, especially France, but also Austria, Germany, Italy, Scandinavian countries, regularly um, happily write. 10 million euro checks per person, per hostage taken by Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. And this is funding most of the organization. This is actually funding a good 50% of um, the Al-Qaeda budget in the region. And it's very, very scary. And you can see both sides. If, you know, there was this one poor British chap who got kidnapped with a bunch of Austrians because he lived in Austria and was on holiday with a bunch of Austrians. And the Austrians all got ransomed out and he got killed. So we don't really want that either. But the fact that the British and the US governments refuse to pay ransoms does mean that they don't tend to kidnap US and UK nationals. Wow. That, that's really interesting. Because you hear about that, like, we don't, you know, we don't do this with the hostages, but like, it's actually a pretty long term feedback loop, like 
vision to not do that. And that's interesting. So my number is 440,000, which is the approximate number of McDonald's workers. Um, and I just... <laughs> Will, come you can't have a number which is the I, same you know what? as segment. It, I just wanted to sort of I understand the scope. Hey, I can do whatever I want. Okay. It's my number. Kathy okay. um, is going to be number. Kathy. She's going <laughs> to... You do you, Kathy. I wanted to understand the you. scope of this McDonald's ruling because <clears throat> if it gets upheld even just for McDonald's, that's about one in 600 people in the United States, but it's, you know, one in like maybe say 300 people who are actually working. So, I mean, it's actually a non-trivial number of people um, that this ruling affects. And I'm, I'm really happy about the ruling. I just, Wait, did you? I, I just want to think about that for a second. One in 300 people working in the United States works for a McDonald's? That's what I'm saying. It's just a ballpark figure. Yes. Roughly. All right. Well, then. <laughs> but... They don't work for McDonald's. Not yet. Not until, uh, not until, <laughs> not until this ruling gets Touché. upheld. Touche. Okay. So my number, it's a sad number, is 20%, which is how much poorer the median American household is or how much less it's worth than in 1984, according to a report by the Russell Sage Foundation that's been getting a bunch of, uh, I guess, press lately. Um, and, of course, the reasons for that, I'm sure we're all aware by now, are housing prices kind of collapsed and a lot of people took on quite a bit of debt. Housing prices can't be down since 1984. No, but between housing prices having collapsed from the peak and the amount of debt people still are shouldering, net worth is still down below, for the median household is still down below 1984 levels. Um, But uh, here was the especially depressing part of when I saw that report. Uh, A few years ago, a professor at New York University named um, Edward Wolf calculated that in 2010, the median household's net worth was actually lower than in 1969, in the middle of the recession, essentially. That's how far net worth had fallen for the typical American family. Progress. We've, yeah. mo- we've moved up from... No, we, have, we might not have, because the Russell Sage Foundation's report shows that since 2010, there has been no improvement for the median family. So it's quite possible that actually we are still below 1969 levels. However, they use two different data sets. So I can't say affirmatively that we are actually still in uh, the age of Aquarius. Well, all the median wage graphs I've seen just like it just hits uh, like a spot in 1980 which really is the is the year where it just flattens out yeah well this is also median net worth that I just right. want to clarify for listeners so net worth is you know it's how much you have in assets minus your debts yeah so, so people stop making more money but they just stop yes. spending more money and, and they and, and they did start borrowing more money that's like, right 1980 was the part was the point at which personal debt started skyrocketing and also mortgages because that was the beginning of the housing boom Anyway, that's it for this week. It's been a monster slate money. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please subscribe. Just search for slate money in the iTunes store. And if you've already subscribed and want to have the wonders of slate money shared with your friends, then leave a review. It is more helpful than you could possibly imagine. Do please continue to write to us with questions and complaints and suggestions and we will feature some of those emails because they're awesome slate money at slate.com is the address our producers for slate money are stan alcorn and tracy samuelson the executive producer of slate's podcasts is andy bowers for kathy o'neill and jordan weissman i'm felix salmon we'll talk to you next week on slate money This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.